If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had a chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In a forthcoming BBC Two series, the renowned art historian Simon Sharma will explore the enduring and powerful legacy the Romantics have left on our modern world. BBC History Revealed editor Charlotte Hodgman caught up with Simon a few weeks ago to find out more about the series and discover why the works of romantic authors, artists and musicians are still so relevant to us today. When we're talking about romanticism, what are we actually talking about um, and and when are we talking about in history? Well, you're talking about something that happens at the beginning, in the the middle of the 18th century, really. Um, uh, There is a kind of unease which gathers force into an outright rejection that reason, logic, measurement, as we say in the long sequence on Blake, controls the world. It's a little secret to everything. And romantics think that feeling, that the heart as well as the head, that visceral instinct um, and... Uh, you know, count just as much, or they they are as forceful a motivation as pure logic. Um, so those who are kind of most restive with what they see as Isaac Newton as the perfect model of, uh, in fact, they they we don't actually say this in the series, but uh, they didn't really know about Newton's own kind of addiction to astrology and the occult and things like that. (laughs) But what they took Newton to stand for was this kind of rather mechanical view of the human mind and of the world. So that they're very invested in dreams, in nightmares as places which can tell us things about ourselves. And above all, the kind of... um, you know, the 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 sort of um, passion of life, really. So with particular yeah. figures, we're talking about Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who's very important, who we don't talk about in the series. I talked about it a lot, actually, elsewhere. But William Blake is very important. In the second programme, um, we deal with uh, a real genius I've long been wanting to talk about, um, the architect, uh, Italian architect Piranesi, who is the first, really, to develop. He he creates prints of what he calls imaginary prisons, and these are really the first extraordinary visions into 
the nightmares of claustrophobia and no way out. I mean, they do suggest modern, sort of almost Kafka-like visions of what it's like to be incarcerated forever and find no way out. And so there's, there, there is this sort of um, emotional, bodily felt onrush of sensation, which they're very invested in. And that, mm. you know, it, it conquers everything eventually for a while, music and poetry and art too. Yeah, I was going to say, it can be found across all sorts of different sort of genres, so literature, architecture, as you were saying. Um, and so, so where is this movement born out of? What's, you know, what, what came previously and how, how was it sort of born? Well, it's, it's particularly, um, I think, born from, um, I was going to say, an aggravation with the classics, you know, with, uh, but on the other hand, Edmund Burke, weirdly, again, someone else we don't actually deal with in the series. I'm giving you a long list of people who are not in the series, <laughs> but you did ask. You know, Edmund Burke actually publishes in the middle of the 18th century a really important book called A Philosophical Inquiry into the Origins of the Sublime and the Beautiful. And he goes back actually to um, a classical book of rhetoric written by someone called Longinus. And Longinus was the first to say that a really effective speaker needs to involve extreme emotion like horror and terror and fright and ecstasy. And it kind of, you know, needs to go through the extremes of feeling if he's going to keep his audience with him. And for Burke, that, and for many of the romantics who follow, um, they felt really restive about everything having to be so decorous, whether you're talking about Augustan poetry or what they thought of as very stale rules of painting and music. So, you know, from the sense in which if you're obliged to produce your works of art inside the kind of cage of decorum, you're missing out on a, a huge amount of uh, human creativity. Their fundamental feeling was that creativity lay elsewhere, not just in mm. dreams and nightmares, but in, in making contact with your own capacity for generating passion. Um, Blake mm. said over and over again, in effect, we are our imagination. And of course, the, the 18th century and, and sort of early 19th century were periods of huge change, um, you know, ac across Europe and elsewhere. Um, how did the, the Romantics, how did they, they sit within this kind of period of, of great change? Well, um, you know, all those who participate as leaders in the French Revolution are drenched in the writings of Rousseau. Um, but they would, have, they, they would have regarded the establishment, in effect, as unnatural, fashionable, corrupt, you know, the elite. What they wanted to do was to actually um, give a sense to regular people that they also, it was, first of all, it was in their nature to be innocent. That was a big deal. Um, and that also to be in contact with their natural instincts all the time. So, for example, things we don't think of as, or we may think of as always having been there, um, as we say in the first programme, um, a street demonstration. That's, you know, the French Revolution is the, the first time that a street demonstration becomes part of political life. But, uh, you know, sort of um, the kind of pure force of the driven crowd is something which um, 
you know, is first given its full measure. It can sort of change allegiance. It can change politics. It can change everything. Other things like flags, national anthems, patriotic poetry, um, all the things that are essentially driven by emotion rather than, um, you know, uh, precedent um, or or a sense of political rules. Those really are the romantics... um, uh, armory, really. The other things which uh, we deal with in the other programs are um, very importantly a sense of tribal belonging. That's really, in its emotional intensity, that's that's very definitely um, an invention of the Romantics. Yeah, and one of the, the sort of the key paintings that you look at in in the first episode um, is Liberty Leading the People, which which seems to kind of embody everything you've just said about this kind of people power. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that painting and the artist and, and, and what it is about this particular work of art that has has still has such an impact? Yes, but an artist called Eugène Delacroix, whose father actually had been involved in the, in the French Revolution. Um, and uh, Delacroix, I, I, you know, growing up really was a very gifted artist who wasn't particularly committed partisan of politics, I think, but he be, but he very much sort of became so. He was um he was a student really um uh, at the time. He had actually already submitted grand paintings, so he wasn't completely unknown. Um but he um was you know was he he wrote to his brother that um, at the time of the revolution of 1830, not the revolution of 1789, but the revolution of <coughs> July 1830 against um, the Bourbon monarch, Charles X. Um, he wrote to his brother that uh, since he couldn't really... He was doing a barricade painting, as he put it. And since he couldn't actually fight for his country, he would paint for it. So even though he painted it a short time after um, the the days, the so-called Trois Glorieuses, the days of July, which changed the monarchy from the Bourbon monarchy to a constitutional monarchy, um, he felt a huge painting could really, because it was shown at the kind of publicly open salon, it's regarded as so dangerous that it was bought up by the new monarchy, lest it encourage further revolt. But what is really crucial about that painting, apart from its size, is that it's, it's like the rest of what the Romantics were about, um, was about the kind of colourful onrush of feeling and of people. It's the ultimate kind of crowd at the barricades. And it has um, all the different social types who were thought to make up what were bracketed together, quote, as the people. So there's a working class person there. There's a, a bourgeois with a top hat on and a hunting gun, and he may have been a journalist or writer or... Um, an academic even, actually. Academics could wield guns at those times. There's a student from the Polytechnique, um, and they're all at the barricade, and they're being led by Liberty, and Liberty is a really, really important figure. Um, during the first French Revolution, 1789 and on, she'd been represented as this classical, allegorical woman with a so-called Phrygian bonnet, this kind of soft red bonnet with a kind of fold at the back, which slaves in the ancient world were given when they moved from slavery to freedom. Um, But the idea in that first French Revolution was that this should be a purely allegorical, abstract figure, not someone of flesh and blood. So the model was always taken from coins and medals. What Delacroix had the genius to do 
because he'd already done political paintings. He's not a very important painting about um, uh, Greece expiring on the ruins in which, again, a kind of female figure was an actual flesh and blood woman. And even though this woman is wearing this symbolic hat, she is very recognisably um, a full-bodied. She's, she's topless for a start. Um, and she has hairy armpits, something I absolutely forgot to mention in the piece to camera. You can't have an allegory with hairy armpits, with armpit hair, by definition. <laughs> so she is absolutely, in every sense, embodied as she leads the crowd over the barricade and towards the, um, the unseen... Um, royal troops. Um, there are tiny details which you didn't quite have time enough to go into in the piece of camera. Um, the tricolour French flag, uh, you know, which was the great icon of the first French Revolution, had been banned by the returning Bourbons after the Battle of Waterloo. And way in the background, you can just see the tiny tricolour flag um, being hoisted on the bell tower of Notre Dame de Paris. So, you know, everywhere there is, it's a mixture really of reality, of kind of almost a sense of you are there reportage, like really good journalistic photography almost. And this very heavily freighted symbolic, symbolic sense of we the people were all together in this kind of onrush for freedom. So it became, you know, this is a very important part of what we try and do. We're not, we're, the, the full title of the series is The Romantics and Us. So I happened to be in Paris during the events of 1968, which were a similar kind of um, extraordinary kind of onrush of popular marches and demonstrations. So I think back about that, and I remember very vividly that that Delacroix painting in many versions and posters and graffiti you know, it came to life all over again. And in the programme, we have this really wonderful poster designer, Michelle Katz, talking exactly about that. And it's, um, you know, this has never gone away. All you have to do today is look at the pictures from Minsk and Grodno and Belarus mm. or Hong Kong, you know, even though it's gone ominously quiet. But however, whatever the fate of popular marches and demonstrations are, there is absolutely no doubt that you know, what was begun, not just by the Delacroix painting, but by a romantic feeling that the people in the streets could actually affect political change, still goes on. And, you know, sometimes it does. It probably will do exactly that in in Belarus. Um, I mean, when I sort of look at romantic art, I think the, the one word that kind of springs out to me is, is how intense um, they are. And in terms of kind of uh, similarities in, in style it's not it's, it's quite a hard um it's quite a hard thing to define isn't it romanticism because interpretations were, were so different so if you look at the works of William Blake for example are very different to um you know the the some of the, the piece, other pieces that you're talking about in in the program um what you know how did Blake sort of move on to him he was a, another sort of fascinating character how did um how does his art you know what do you, what do you take from his art um that kind of can tell us about the, the movie? yeah I'll, I'll say a bit about that but I, I I would like to sort of you know just uh say a word to your excellent question a second ago um um, I, one thing romantics do, you know, one thing that, that pre-romantic art, neoclassical art does is establish distance. You know, if you think about even masterpieces by someone like Jacques-Louis David, who is on the side of the revolution, those are particularly the works 
before the revolution started, um, exemplary moments, you know, take place. Mm. And so it, the kind of window, really, between the beholder and the action um, is, you know, it's very solid. You're, you're centrally in the position of an admiring observer of something going on a long time ago and rather far away, and you're meant to draw inspiration almost as you would from an instructing schoolmaster. In the case of the Romantics, just technically, whether it's Delacroix, whether it's, you know, Jericho's great masterpiece, The Raft of the Medusa, which, you know, because we too are seeing bodies washed up in the water and the sea, um, whether it's the Mediterranean or the English Channel every day now, you know, has this absolutely powerful contemporary resonance. The crucial thing is that there is no separation when you stand in front of these huge enormous, engulfing paintings, which are full of a kind of, you know, dramatic, often violent or tragic action. You are in the painting. Um, There's no border, really, at the bottom of the painting between where you're standing. In the raft of the Medusa, you know, if you had to... You have the feeling that your feet are getting wet, really, from from the kind of flood both of tragic emotion and from the action going on. So they they break all the rules about the fourth wall, we would say. It's rather like a piece of theatre where the action doesn't take place on the proscenium stage at all, but actually in the round or you're, there's a kind of inseparability between the onlooker and the action you're beholding. So that is something designed to make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. Blake had that same instinct for a different reason, that Blake comes out of the world, he doesn't come out of high art in the way in which Delacroix and Jericot and the French romantic painters do. He comes out of um, a lower middle-class family. Um, He grows up in a world of printing. He grows up in a very kind of rowdy part of Soho. Um, And a lot of his early work, you know, he too buys into the cult of nature and the innocence of man. But a lot lot of his work is book illustrations. So, um, you know, some some of these books are intended for children. Some of them are about children, about songs of innocence and experience, but intended for adults. So you have to imagine him almost as a kind of cartoonist or graphic artist or commercial artist in in that kind of way. So he comes out of a kind of hands-on sense that first you think about who's going to be looking at this rather than actually how you're going to make your reputation in, quote, the art world. So he's naturally, he's also someone very interested in spirituality, really, but he he hates the kind of established Church of England. Um, He goes through all kinds of varieties of, um, you know, signing on to ecstatic, culty religions, really. Um, And um, he sort of understands, I think, um, everybody's appetite for heroes and villains, for kind of gods and monsters. So, you know, he has this, as I say, um, you know, in the program, he has this almost kind of comic book superhero instinct, really, for what kind of grabs people who may not well be literate even, actually. Um, And these enormous figures are figures of terror and horror and cruelty, as well as you know, heroism and innocence. And uh, full yeah. of kind of fleshy, fleshy action, really. Um, so yeah. that that's a kind of, you know, that's not a world, even though he goes to Royal Academy, has no hope, really, of ever becoming, a you know, a proper acad- academician, really. Um, 
So that that stands him in good stead, but he relies on a number of patrons. You know, he's he he's rediscovered in the middle of the nineteenth century. Um, he never really uh, catches on with a huge number of people in his own lifetime. But my God, you know, he really catches on after he dies and to endless generations afterwards. Who um, who um, so out of the people that you look at in the in the program, who does catch on? You know, and and why are they? You know, what what makes one romantic more popular than than another? Well, I think um, uh, you know, uh, Jericho and Delacroix clearly clearly catch on. Actually, you know, the uh, Jericho, for example, for, for example, brings the raft of the Medusa to London. We originally had a sequence, and in the end, and yet it, we couldn't quite keep it there. But the raft of the Medusa is literally a public attraction. It's set up in the so-called Egyptian Hall, which is a kind of um, entertainment place in the middle of Piccadilly. You can actually still see um, a plaque above it about halfway down Piccadilly. And, you know, tens of thousands of people come and see it because they are literally kind of engulfed by the sensation of seeing this extraordinary, extraordinary picture. And they all, they all, if they don't know, and many of them do know about what happened, which was a, a ship that ran aground and the captain of the ship was a toff and he dumps all the people who are not toffs, hundreds of them, on this raft which can't possibly survive. And the, the raft was supposed to be towed to the safety of the African shore. They're going back to West Africa to re-found the colony. But he cuts the ropes because the the lifeboats in which the toffs are um, aren't making any headway. So it's a and out of 163 people, only I think 15 people survive. So it's a kind of front page, literally front page newspaper horror headline. And um, so so the painting really absolutely is like a movie. I mean, it is really the size of a movie, and it has all the kind of terror and horror and fright and violent emotion and. Um, that that a blockbuster movie would have, so that becomes, you know, very powerful too. And there, are, you know, there are there are other people later in the series. For example, Chopin is very important in the third film, which is about nationalism, because when Poland is finally eliminated yet again by the Russians in 1831. Uh, Chopin is himself already outside Poland and he spends the rest of his life in exile. And his music, particularly the mazurkas, then become a kind of anthem of not just Polish exile, but kind of, you know, even though the political state has been annihilated, um, Poland as a state of mind, as a state of kind of cultural allegiance, something when you hear the music, your heart swells with a sense of tragic belonging. Absolutely everybody responds to. And, um, you know, the, the, the key to the romantic success is that they whether it's Blake or whether it's um, Shelley, I mean, he doesn't, The Mask of Anarchy, um, does. it's so radical, it doesn't get published in his lifetime, but it does get published afterwards. The Mask of Anarchy works because it rhymes and because a lot of its kind of rhythms and cadences and meters are taken from the kind of poetry which ordinary people, um, you know, immediately respond to. The same thing is true with Robert Burns, you know, who's very important in Programme 3. Um, Burns is a brilliant success, um, because he's not only a very, very clever poet, even though he's a kind of full-time farmer, but he takes the regular speech of the Scottish street and the Scottish pub. You know, he recites his poetry down in his local village pub in Mochlin, and we, we, 
we did some of that in that very pub. So the the answer was worth and Coleridge both you know, when they were living in Somerset and the Quantocks claimed, and they, and in Wordsworth's case, I think it was a reasonable claim to make, that they weren't using highfalutin, you know, in heavy air quotation marks, the kind of language which would be thought of to be proper for poetry, but they're using the language of ordinary people. Um, and in, in all those cases, it was a question of really abolishing the boundary between what we would call pop culture and high culture, and that that really was the key to success, eh? Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The sort of sense of belonging to an extended emotional, emotionally extended family, whether it's a family that's your country or a family um, that's the street march, um, is, you know, very, very strong. Just doesn't go away. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Can we see sort of similarities or, or differences in um, romanticism, you know, across Europe? So English romanticism, you know, where did that fit in with kind of say, romanticism in France um you know did, did different sort of nations adapt it you know and and sort of make it make it their own well I think they all translate each other for a start and they all go to but you know Wordsworth goes to France um uh Shelley famously and Keats goes to Italy um there there is a tremendous kind of 
uh, it, it's not a purely kind of British thing or a purely Brit- uh, or, uh, Shakespeare becomes unbelievably important in to Berlioz, for example, in in France. Um, so there is a sort of sense of a kind of brotherhood and indeed sisterhood um, of impassioned art for the people, which absolutely crosses boundaries. There's no doubt mm. about that. For example, Fingal's Cave, you know, Mendelssohn's famous overture, the Hebridean overture, um, a whole procession of German philosophers and musicians and composers and thinkers, you know, make their way to get seasick on the ferry to, to Fingal's Cave in Staffa. And so you have both Mendelssohn and Turner, for example. We did we did want very much to do a Fingal's Cave um, moment, actually sequence, but um, the the sea was so incredibly rough. The skipper, <laughs> who normally ferry around, wouldn't actually put out his boat, so he lost the oh. chance to do a sequence, which was Mendelssohn got in, like everybody else got incredibly seasick. Yeah, yeah, I would have been prepared to be seasick yet again for the BBC, and not for. The, First or last time, probably. <laughs> Dedication. So, yeah. So they um, are, they, they, you know, Schiller and those Wordsworth and vice versa, and Turner goes to the Rhine and to and does these extraordinary engravings of Rhine scenery, which are very popular in Britain as well as in as well as in Europe. So it is. It's not quite the first time, but it is a very remarkable moment when there is a, a sense of international European community about mm. uh, upholding all the values which the Romantics stand for. It's interesting that you, you mentioned a minute ago about it also being a sisterhood. Um, and I wanted to ask you about kind of how women fitted into this this movement and whether it gave them a voice and whether they w- were a big part of this of this romanticism that was that was happening during this time. Yeah, well, we have a very nice sequence about Mary Wollstonecraft, who thinks of herself on the one mm-hmm. hand as an arch-rationalist and the case she makes in the first feminist, great feminist manifesto in English um, in the Vindication of the Rights of Woman in 1792 is that women can reason just as well as men and therefore absolutely entitled to as much uh, political rights and civil rights as well as men. But actually, she gets very caught up and not particularly happily, but she's deeply engulfed, really, in the French Revolution, goes to Paris, tries to make the best of it, actually falls in love with a scoundrel who more or less kind of abandons her. It's a terrible kind of just you know tragic love story comes back to England tries to commit suicide but she 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 is someone who very much is torn between head and heart and reason and feeling but um, but she is a very good example of, of someone who put a huge amount of faith that this change when the passions of the people would actually command the institutions of state this would be the great moment of emancipation um, and sometimes it works out just as a matter of professional practice. For example, in in um, the second programme, Clara Schumann, we talk about, is as an absolutely equal partner with Robert Schumann. And Clara Schumann, they fall in love, they have the ultimate romantic love affair, their father won't let them get married, they obstinately persist, they have kind of secret rendezvous, and eventually they take him to court and they marry anyway. Clara is an extraordinary kind of virtuoso pianist, but she's also a composer. Schumann um, actually was also a performer but he does terrible damage to to one of his fingers through trying to use a kind of mad contraption, which was thought to 
a strength in your fingers, instead of which it virtually paralyzed and stopped him from becoming a performer. Um, but they have this extraordinary marriage in which they're kind of equal creative partners, both as composers and Clara. Clara very bravely kind of performs Schumann's works, which were very sometimes very hard. They were so, in a way, avant-garde, and they were so driven by instinct and intuition and disobeyed so many of the standard rules of classical composition that it was a doubly brave thing for her to do. So, you know, it wasn't just a kind of romantic um, soap opera for them. It was really a jet. The same thing, one could have done that with um, um, with Mendelssohn and his sister Fanny as well. They had a similar, you know, the beautiful, um, the beautiful songs without words that Mendelssohn composes are the work of both of them, not just of him. So Georges Saint, of course, lives with Chopin tempestuously and... Uh, for a while harmoniously and then again not. But so it was the great moment of creative liftoff for women without any question at all. Yeah. And how how did sort of um, the the governments and, the, you know, the, the sort of rulers, how did they view this movement? And were there any sort of moves to, 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 to shut it down or to kind of, you know, the people who were involved to, to you know, were they penalised, um, you know, for the works that they were, they were creating? Well, um, in Delacroix's case, as I say, the state bought his painting and uh, in order that people should not see it. So this is an ultimate backhand compliment. Um, so that there were, you know, so um, there was, uh, it was extraordinary with the raft of the Medusa, even though its payoff was really to attack the royal government. The king himself, Louis XVIII, seemed to like it, but they were extremely nervous, really, about how it would seem to make the powers that the establishment seem heartless and callous and remote from the people. Um, so, uh, and in Shelley's case, when Shelley is just kind of, you know, a student, really, at Oxford, he is not only sent down for writing and printing, even though they're done anonymously, two works, one which was about the freedom of the press, was a protest against the imprisonment of an Irish politician who was promoting the cause of Catholic emancipation, but also um, a, a pamphlet about atheism. When Shelley then goes to Ireland and tries to be a stump orator, um, having eloped with a 16-year-old bride, he's immediately followed by government spies. So actually, um, he's under he and his young bride and their friends are under government surveillance in a kind of surveillance state. Um, so we're talking about the time when there was a lot of nervousness still about whether or not Napoleon would win the war. So 1810, 1811, 1812. Uh, so there's a great deal of nervousness really about, um, you know, what the, uh, the, the output of romantics could do to stimulate disaffection and cause a real problem. I mean, it, as I say, the whole thing is a kind of real backhand compliment to the power of art to actually um, make people be prepared to sacrifice themselves for freedom, liberty, equality, all the great nostrums which we're still fighting for and you know, yeah. everywhere you look around the world, it's not a battle that's ever over. Yeah, I mean, where, you know, what do you think, you know, in this sort of day and age that we're in now, where can you see kind of elements of romanticism and, and how do you think we're affected by the, their, their legacy? Well, I mean, as, as we said earlier on, you know, just there's not a, there's not a week goes past where some mm. extraordinary kind of demonstration, whether it's in the Umbrella Revolution in Hong Kong 
or whether it's what's happening, as you and I are talking right now in the streets of Belarus, where the notion really that different, I mean, it's an extraordinary thing happening in Belarus and that the unions and working class are involved, students are involved, journalists are involved. Um, so, you know, the, the, the notion that actually authoritarian regimes can perpetually and forever um, lock down this kind of in, intense popular outpouring historically always proves to be very shaky and very deluded. So that element in the kind of, you know, it, it's easy to dismiss it as naive, but what it does really is put authoritarian governments in a position of having to decide whether to perpetrate a massacre, as the Chinese government did in Tiananmen Square, and whether or not they will do it again in Hong Kong, or whether to, um, you know, sort of retreat before some of the demands. So that sort of thing lives on, you know, we're, we're talking about something that happened... Um, you know, two, more than 200 years ago. So it's an extraordinary tribute to the kind of creative energy and um, rhetorical power, really, of what the Romantics fashioned. And, yeah. you know, if you just think about, um, you know, that Blake, famous Blake poem, you know, Jerusalem, and how heartily it's sung at the end, we, we finished the whole series in the proms with the prom crowd singing Jerusalem, you know, that's all, even though the music is set at the end of the 19th century, um, the, the words are electrifying still. And so I say in the third programme, you know, they still make the hair and stand on the back of the neck, you know, the sort of sense of belonging to an extended emotional, emotionally extended family, whether it's a family that's your country or a family... Um, that's the street march, um, is, you know, very, very strong, just doesn't go away. Yeah. Um, the, <clears throat> the, um, the, the, the works of art and the, and the writings that are coming out during this period um, and this intense focus on, on imagination and, and dreams and emotion um, must have had quite an impact on, on individuals who are, who are creating these. And sort of, we've mentioned Schumann, but he, Schumann, had quite serious mental health problems, didn't he? Was that was that kind of related to to the kind of the things that he was creating? Yeah, I mean, it's not just you know they always yes. Um, uh, we we talk about kind of Coleridge and Thomas de Quincey as people who you know opium was available really as uh, you you'd buy it over the counter at Boots as it were. Um, it mm. cut, every, everybody bought it. They, even mothers fed it in very dilute form to. Um, to children had colic or were sort of crying at night to sort of terrifying to think what that did. Um, but it was a basic standard medicine. But of course, actually taking opium opened up your head to all kinds of weird dreams and illuminations. And Kublai Khan is, is by Coleridge's own description, is the account of the visions that he had in one such state of um, opium hallucination, um, an interruption of, until he's interrupted by that notorious person from Porlock. Um, so the sort of sense, when you do that, when you actually push the emotions and 
when your mind starts looking at itself, when you actually push everything to the edge, the danger is that you'll go right over the edge. Um, and Schumann is someone who was a casualty of going right over the edge, and he ends his life very tragically in a mental asylum. He tries to commit suicide. There is a strong, you know, there is a certain kind of suicide strain as a kind of occupational risk among the romantics. So said Mary Wollstonecraft mm. tried to kill herself and then does die in childbirth, not intentionally, of course. But so there is this sort of sense of embracing the darkness, which is... You know, it's a, it's a terrible hazard. I mean, so many of them do end up in this extremely dark place. Coleridge ends up in his later years completely addicted to a terrifying degree um, to opium, to, to drugs. Um, and many of them end up in this in this very difficult and frightening place. Wordsworth, yeah. we have at the very end of the programme, which is the second programme called Chambers of the Mind, as the one person who really doesn't actually surrender, doesn't really go over the edge. And it's partly because, very beautifully expressed in, in Tintin Abbey, he discovers that the thing to do is actually, rather than being trapped inside, endlessly looking at the interior of your own head, you dissolve yourself into the larger entity of nature. So um, he his high, his sort of sense of universal revelation is of the human mind as part of the cosmos, you know, of the all-embracing universe. And that actually keeps him steady. Um, do you have a, a favourite romantic? Is there a, a, an individual from the series that you would you think either has had the, most, the biggest impact or, or kind of fascinates you personally? Um, well, it was more, a ca- more of a case, I guess, of... I mean, I, I, you know, uh, discovering things which I hadn't quite given enough credit to. Um, I mm. hadn't, he certainly, I'm not sure he would be my favourite, but I'd read when I was a kid, um, you know, Thomas de Quincey's um, Confessions of an English Opium Eater and thought, wow, this is um, heavy stuff, you know, <laughs> both the opium <laughs> and the book. But I hadn't realised what an extraordinary writer he is, actually. He's an absolutely amazing writer. Um, and he lived in Dove Cottage. He lived in Wordsworth and Dorothy Wordsworth's house. It was absolutely amazing. Then he, he moved out of there because his library was so enormous, actually. He had to leave it in the cottage and rent... Um, uh, rent other accommodation not far away in the Lake District. But we really try and establish him as an immensely powerful writer. And as a great writer, he really um, he really does sort of influence lots of modern um, psychological writers, you know, going into 20th century. I also hadn't quite realised how extremely, you know, powerfully moving the very late works of... Schumann's piano music are. We have a brilliant Polish virtuoso pianist, Piotr Andrzejewski, who loves, who played Chopin for us. And we really, we really brought him into the programs to talk and play about Chopin. But he really also wanted very much to talk and play Schumann. And he played something which I really hadn't clocked at all called the Songs of the Early Morning, Kassanga de Früher, um, which were the last things pretty much that Schumann did before he became completely mentally incapacitated. And then uh, just extraordinary simplicity. I mean, you hear where Philip Glass 
is coming from in a way. They're incredibly stripped down and minimalist and beautiful, and they feel like the tolling of bells sometimes. They almost go back to Bach's contrapuntalism. They're not what you necessarily think of as deeply romantic music, but they are because they really unite instinct with thought and they're just just absolutely sweep you away. I mean, they're as good as, I think, almost as good as anything Beethoven wrote. So, yeah. There were lots of little epiphanies like that, I have to say, through. Yeah. When you, when you go filming, you know, sometimes the location takes over and um, yeah. and it, you'll, you'll be aware of the shot, you know, it's a sort of very ghostly, kind of feels like a seance sometimes. And it, <laughs> it, did, it did feel like that at times, I have to say. Partly because yeah. you're holding manuscripts. Oh, the other person I would say absolutely is a favourite um, is Burns. I, you know, um, I knew about Burns, I always liked Burns, there were particular poems we all love, like, you know, the Mousy and the uh, Haggis and so on. But, and yeah, but I hadn't realised how, what a kind of compositional genius Burns is, how he actually marries up very clever thought to um, to this instinct for a kind of poetry that everybody, accessible absolutely to everybody. You know, the, the mousy um, is really wonderful and it starts, you know, humorously and comically and endearingly, but there's an incredible gear shift in which the mouse that Burns turns over accidentally with his plough um, becomes a kind of companion for the tenant farmer, you know, really trying to make a living out of this very difficult, impoverished Scottish soil in Ayrshire. And, you know, Burns is also, he's he has a sudden, extraordinary, unlikely success with the second edition um, of poems chiefly in the Scottish dialect in 1787, and he goes on a kind of rock star celebrity book tour, um, knowing exactly what he's doing. He has his image branded for him by his friend Alexander Naismith and in the portraits. And um, and he's, uh, you know, he's a very bad boy in lots of ways. A lot of these people are very bad boys, like Shelley. Um, so, um, you know, you don't want to have anything to do with the romantics if you're too prim, I think, actually, about how a very gifted artist is supposed to behave. But um, I was I was absolutely wowed by Burns. I had a bit of a man crush on him all over again. <laughs> um, and you met you met a lot of people, didn't you, during the, the filming of the of the series? Um, so were you surprised by any by how the kind of romantics have influenced other things other than sort of this people power um, aspect of it. Were you surprised by the sort of the people that you spoke to and the stories that they had? Yeah, there is, um, you know, in again, in the um, last programme about the feeling of tribe, about national feeling, good and bad, um, there's a wonderful, uh, she lives in England, but a wonderful youngish, by my standards, very young, artist called Mariella Neudecker, who took on the, you know, really extraordinary paintings of Caspar David Friedrich and kind of redesigns them and puts them in these amazing kind of glass, almost aquarium-like vitrines. And, you know, she was very smart and... Um, you know, very powerful in in the way she wanted both to come to grips with what the Nazis had done to the Romantic tradition, 
kind of adopted it, co-opted it, ambushed it, hijacked it, perverted it, really, and distorted it, and mm. and bring people back to what might have been the original instinct. So that was her work, and and what she had to say about it was very eloquent. Sometimes it's a matter of performance. I mean, I've known Tobias Menzies, the actor, for a bit because he was our wonderful Henry V in. Uh, a short series I did on Shakespeare history plays. And um, and also we met when I actually wrote a little play um, about 9-11. Um, and Tobias was in one of the other playlets that was produced. And, um, but he... he um, he reads, actually, he kind of performs Kubla Khan just staggeringly well and not like anyone else who has ever read it, I think, actually. And he is so inside Coleridge's head, which was a dark and weird and extraordinary place. So that the mm. performance, I wasn't actually there for the performance, but um, it is, it, it's truly, uh, there, are, there are lots of astonishing moments, I think, in this series. Um, Chris Eccleston, who you saw, do the mask of anarchy again you know mm-hmm. gives absolutely everything to it so i think the romantics you know succeeded in reaching across the centuries and inhabiting all these performers and commentators and oh i loved also yeah testament you know our hip-hop artist who you know <laughs> couldn't make head or tail of blake when he was being taught it to school and then as he got into hip-hop realised that pretty much everything that Blake was saying, you know, spoke directly to him. And again, he does an absolutely wonderful performance of London. And we found a graffiti artist who was doing a modern version of the Raft and Medusa on top of an apartment block in Paris, in urban Paris, um, P-Boy, Patrice Boyard. And um, so we we were determined, we didn't really, as I say, want to make this kind of just museum stuffiness, really. We really wanted to show how all this work lived. That was Simon Sharma. Simon's three-part series, The Romantics and Us, begins on Friday the 11th of September on BBC Two. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Friday when Ravi Samaya will be discussing the mysterious death of a UN Secretary-General. (laughs) 